Today on Stronger Than Reason, we'll get frothy with Skinny Puppy's legendary 1989 album, Rabies. Welcome to Stronger Than Reason. Well, as I speak, Skinny Puppy are wrapping up their final tour. The second leg started in Dallas on November 8th, 2023, and the final show will be in L.A. on Tuesday, December 5th. So hopefully if you're one of the puppy people, you managed to catch them. It's the end of an era, folks. I saw them over the summer and devoted a whole episode, number 21, to that experience. I really enjoyed the show. They've always been one of my favorite bands. They're just so unique. Many try to emulate them, but it's impossible to do. Their special sauce has always been something in the mix between Ogre and Kevin Key, and now with Mark Walk in there too, and their live members Matthew Setzer and Justin Bennett, who make the show something special. So other than that concert episode, I talked about their early live album Ain't It Dead Yet, and my favorite studio album Too Dark Park back in episodes 4 and 29. And this is, what, episode 47? So it's been a while since I talked about them. I figured with the tour going on, it would be appropriate to talk about my next favorite puppy album, one that is still a fan favorite, though at the time, it had the fans polarized since it veered off in an unexpected direction. See, there was always this dynamic of opposition between Ogre and Kevin, and they're the first to admit it. Whatever it was, rivalry, competition animosity. It's arguably what provided their music with such an interesting edge. But in the case of this album, Ogre was feeling some pressure. He wasn't really happy with the band dynamic. Kevin and his partner in music, Dwayne Gettle, were a unified front and worked together like a hand in a glove crafting Skinny Puppy's music. Whereas Ogre, as the vocalist and lyricist, was always somewhat on the outs. So for whatever reason... While writing for this album, he decided to phone a friend, and that friend was Al Jorgensen of Ministry and the Revolting Cox. Ogre's idea was to fly Al up to Vancouver from Chicago and have him produce the album. So then the dynamic would be two-on-two, so they had a man defense rather than a zone. And this is is interesting, since Skinny Puppy already had a longtime producer in Dave Ogilvie, who was otherwise known as Rave. So Rave was, in effect, shunted off as a co-producer or possibly an engineer on this album. And Al was happy to come up and help Ogre, but by all accounts, Kevin, Dwayne, and Rave were less happy. But fortunately, the band had a proven record of turning conflict into great music. So by that measure, this new album should have been a corker. And it was. It came out in November 1989, as the much-beloved album, Rabies. So yeah, this album is something of a crossover effort, or a blend, maybe. Skinny Puppy with a shot of ministry, because Al was not only in the producer's chair, he also played some guitar and did some vocals. So what was my own experience with Rabies? As I may have mentioned before, I first heard Skinny Puppy in 1990 or so, somewhere in between the time that Rabies and Too Dark Park came out. So I wasn't lining up at the old National Record Mart the day Rabies dropped. And good thing, because my local NRM would not have had it, (laughs) we had to travel to the big city to buy anything that was remotely 
alternative. They just didn't sell that weirdo stuff in my town. Anyway, a friend of mine had rabies on CD since it was the most recent puppy album at the time, but it wasn't even the first one I heard. My first taste of them was from two albums prior, Cleanse, Fold, and Manipulate, which came out in 1987. My friend bought it on cassette. The opening track, First Aid, is what got me hooked. And the next track, Addiction, just reeled me in, and I've been a puppy fan ever since. But soon enough, my friend held up this CD and said, check this out, and he put rabies on. Now, I should point out that he had the CD, not just the tape like he did with the previous album, and he had a really good sound system, one of those fancy component stereos everyone had at the time. So my first listen really packed a wallop, especially since the lead-off track here is 100% killer and would eventually become my number one favorite Skinny Puppy track ever, Rodent. But Rabies offers a lot more than that. It arguably has at least three of the greatest Skinny Puppy tracks on it, Rodent, which is still a live favorite, and the two songs selected as singles, Warlock and Tin Omen. But we'll talk about tracks in a bit. What really hit me about Rabies was just how much harder it sounded. The beats were harder, the guitar was harder, Ogre's vocals were harder, and everything was beefed up with distortion. So I got my first CD player in 91, and it wasn't long before I picked this disc up because I just had to have it. In fact, I can even remember where I got it, though that store is now long gone. But even to this day, the first few bars of Rodent just get me all fired up. And they remind me of good times, hanging out with the gang at my friend's house, you know, playing his Game Boy, talking smack. (laughs) I've, I've never gotten tired of that song. And I was thrilled, thrilled to hear the band play it and Warlock live this summer. It was just such a kick and it hit so hard hearing these songs at like 100 plus decibels with the band right in front of me. And back in the day, I was already a ministry fan, so I was happy to see Al on this record. And without the internet, of course, we had no idea of any of these intra-band politics or dynamics, but we just knew we liked Al. And at this point, we had heard The Land of Rape and Honey and thought it was one of the greatest albums ever. So it only made sense to us that two of our favorite industrial bands were joining forces. And I guess the fan community was more split on rabies. They were uncomfortable with the idea of Al coming in and taking over. And he did seem to be ubiquitous around that time, having created a half dozen side projects with Paul Barker. And I dove into all of those in episode 23, if you're interested. But commercially speaking, Al had the Midas touch in the late 80s, and anything he put his finger on received a bump, skinny puppy included. If nothing else, his involvement created a buzz. It was the old principle that there's no such thing as bad press. And personally for me, I think of rabies more as as a collection of songs than an album. In my mind, it doesn't flow as effortlessly as Too Dark Park. It just doesn't come together in a real unified whole, maybe because a few of the songs are such standout classics, like they don't really fit on any album. It's like having a few diamonds in your collection of cool looking rocks. They just don't fit in that context. And really, I wasn't always listening to the album when I listened to those songs. For instance, I had Tin Omen 
on a much loved mixtape. And thinking back, I'm pretty sure I had ministries in case you didn't feel like showing up on side A, and then just like a bunch of random tracks on side B. So there were a couple songs from PIL's Happy album, then Tin Omen, and then I think it was something by the Sisters of Mercy. And I was really proud of that mixtape because I found a way to emulate the white on black text from In Case You Didn't Feel Like Showing Up. First, I cut out some typing paper to the appropriate size, as you did back then. Then I used a big old permanent black marker to color the whole thing black. And finally, I put this in my typewriter and used correction paper to type the letters in white. Does anyone remember correction paper? They were like sheets of paper that had this white stuff, this powdery stuff on one side. I mean, talk about things that have been lost to time. But the end result looked really good. The only downside was that it stank. It literally stank. The permanent marker was one of those really powerful ones, the kind that could, you know, get you high from breathing it in. And I'll bet if I pulled that tape out of my collection now, 30-odd years later, it would still have a whiff to it. And, you know, it's funny, it never occurred to me to use black construction paper for these things or something. But anyway, it looked pretty cool, which is what mattered. So yeah, I would listen to Tin Omen on the regular on that cassette. And now that I think about it, I don't recall ever having rabies on cassette in full. I don't think I listened to this whole album until I picked up this CD a few years later, which is odd. Uh, another thing that happened associated with this album around the time is that we used to sometimes go to a nightclub in the next town over. And it was one of those like under 21 clubs that catered to alternative music. So they used to play some skinny puppy. And I have a distinct memory uh, my friends and I moshing around at Tin Omen there. And I guess if nothing else, that experience made me realize that there was a real audience for Skinny Puppy beyond my immediate friends. There was a whole room of weirdo kids wearing black and digging this music. And it was sweet to hear Tin Omen at absolutely ear-splitting volume in public. It was kind of amazing. And it might have been one of the first times that I heard my music played loudly at all, uh, at least until I'd go to my first few shows. And, you know, being a young adult pre-21 was definitely a weird time of life. You're too young for bars, but too old to go to bed early. So we'd be out all night, usually at Denny's or Dunkin' Donuts, eating gravy fries, drinking coffee. I didn't smoke, but a couple of my friends did. So it's funny to remember us sitting in the smoking section at Denny's, which is another just a blast from the past. We'd sit there for hours. We would get free coffee refills and we would eat the bare minimum of food for them to not kick us out because we had no money. And there'd always be some kind of hijinks like the time at the donut shop where we decided to see how much sugar we could put in the coffee. A lot, it turns out, like most of the sugar. Um, eventually we got a spoon to stand up in the middle of the coffee. The coffee had just turned to like a thick syrup, which we thought was hilarious, but the staff, not so much. And I'm sure they were relieved when we all turned 21 and started haunting bars instead of their restaurants. But all of those memories are kind of wrapped up in my love for Skinny Puppy and Rabies in particular, because nearly all of my friends were into industrial music. We all spoke it as a common language. So getting back to the band, in the late 80s, they were really on a roll. 
this was back in the days when they were still coming out with an amazing album every year. And that's actually true. Bites came out in 1985. Rabies was the fifth album and it came out in 1989. And in fact, that was a streak that they would carry on all the way through to Two Dark Park. 1991 was the first year of their career that they didn't release a studio album. So that's how you know your band is hot if you're putting out that much good stuff on the regular. So in early 1990, when I got hip to the band, I had hours and hours of Skinny Puppy to discover and dig into. And uh, we could hear a pretty distinct difference in rabies, though. It had a lot of guitars. Uh, Al had a tendency to throw metal guitars in nearly everything he did, which would become only more true over time, alas. Historically, Puppy had guitars on some of their stuff, but really only used it for texture. So you can see Kevin playing some feedback guitar in the Ain't It Dead Yet video, for instance, and it's not like he's up there trying to be Jimmy Page or something. He's just using it for noise. And in fact, he plays it on first aid, which uh, I'm even remembering just from memory. <laughs> I know that he has that guitar strapped around him for that song. But Al on Rabies introduced some more conventional rhythm guitar parts. The songs weren't really guitar based, but every now and then there'd be some riffing kind of in the, just in the background, like on Rodent, for instance, it has a moment and everyone who's familiar with the song knows exactly the moment. I mean, where you just have to start headbanging. It's like that scene from Wayne's world when they're in the car listening to Bohemian Rhapsody and that guitar that you hear is coming from Al. He's playing it onto the track. Now, they didn't add guitar to every song. This is not a metal album, but it's sprinkled in like an ingredient. It's like the spice in your taco meat. Sometimes it's played right onto the track like in Rodent, but sometimes it's played and sampled and cut up like on Tin Omen. It's just another sonic flavor that they were throwing into the mix. To anyone who's listening who hasn't heard Skinny Puppy at all, and I know there are at least a couple of you out there, I should point out, that they aren't really a conventional rock band at all. <laughs> Their music is heavily sample-based. The drums are normally the focused. In fact, the impetus for the band from Kevin's own mouth was to make electronic music that featured super heavy drums. And they typically did use drum machines, although Kevin is an accomplished drummer. We talked about that in the Too Dark Park episode. For instance, he played the drums on their song Spasmolytic. He played them on a kit in one take, which is just nuts because that song goes at a crazy pace and has all sorts of time changes in it. And of course, he exclusively played drums on some of the later puppy shows like their reunion gig at the Doomsday Festival in 2000. Kevin even toured as the drummer for Ogre's side band, which is also called Ogre. That's O-H-G-R in 2001 on their tour for the Welt album. And Kevin famously had an enormous drum kit that he called Drumosaurus. And being a six foot plus kind of guy or whatever, he was pretty imposing behind the kit. So yeah, no lack of drum talent in the band. But at a typical live puppy show, Kevin would play kind of every instrument at once. He and Dwayne were both in stations at the back of the stage, surrounded by keyboards, drum pads, radios, whatever. And apart from the drums, 
almost everything was played live. They more or less brought their entire studio equipment on stage and recreated the whole track from scratch, which is something you don't really see bands do much these days because A, it's very impractical to bring that much gear on tour, and B, it's just too complicated and difficult. It's much easier to be lazy and just play a few parts to a backing track, which is kind of a bummer if you're in the audience wanting to see all this insanity. But hey, you know, being so sample-based, the upside is that they're a band with a very wide sonic palette. They could and did use just about any sound, and Kevin talks about that on his YouTube channel, which I encourage you to check out. Uh, He explains how they'd fill a keyboard bank with just random samples, sampled right off the radio, and they would turn that sample bank into a new song. So they found a lot of inspiration there and just random noises. So you can think of Skinny Puppy as if they were sort of like a visual artist who started extending their palette with ultraviolet and infrared paint, (laughs) just using colors that other artists aren't using. Uh, They're using more sounds than a traditional band could make. And it was in the way that they layered those sounds into the mix that gave their songs a very specific feel. Um, And as I've stated before, their sound is at once hard-hitting, but also cinematic. Um, You know, Rabies, though, under Al's direction, was maybe a bit more accessible than their previous albums. The songs here weren't exactly pop songs, but the ones with a beat tended to have a pretty steady beat, and... As an album, I think it was maybe a little more groovy than their other albums, and I think that's borne out by the fact that it has some of their biggest hits. So let's take a closer look at the album, starting with the artwork. Of course, the art was designed by their longtime associate, Stephen R. Gilmore, and what we have here is a collage, and behind everything we see the Looney Tunes, that's all folks, background, of course. And then we have a bunch of pictures in the middle, maybe references to various tracks. You have Charles Manson on here and Hitler, I suppose. And the now classic puppy logo type at the top with the patented Gilmore transparency effects. Uh, On the back, we have, you know, the Federal Reserve seal of Chicago, which is a reference to Al's involvement, of course. And, you know, the Federal Reserve seal used to appear on most American currency, at least on Federal Reserve notes, the ones with the green seals, which have been predominant since the 70s. And these days, this particular kind of seal is only on the $1 and $2 bills, which are the only bills that haven't been redesigned. And as a design guy, I have to say that bothers me, because in my opinion, they should redesign all the bills or none of them. Anyway, we also have a nice background photo. You can see a foam, which is kind of funny since the album is called Rabies. So anyway, this insert opens up. It's one of these that opens up in a really annoying way. So you get a bigger version of the collage, which is great. Uh, You get some album credits here. And Al is credited as Alien Jorgensen, of course. And, you know, on the other side, when this opens up the hallway... We have some lyrics, but for just five of the tracks. And then we have some, I don't know what you would call them, maybe essays from Ogre and Kevin, both in nearly unreadable stream of consciousness. Like they read like 
as if James Joyce smoked some OG Kush. But anyway, Kevin's is quite short. It's at the bottom, and it includes, and I paraphrase, F.U. Robert Palmer. (laughs) And when asked about it, he explained that he saw Robert Palmer as being everything that was wrong with the music industry in the late 80s. So (laughs) that's kind of interesting, I suppose. But I remember copying down the lyrics to Tin Omen in my high school notebook back in the day because I used to just sort of read them to myself in physics class instead of paying attention. And to this day, I still have them memorized. I can still sing along word for word, which is no easy feat because like most of Ogre's lyrics, they're free verse and just totally disassociated. But you know, I figure if Ogre had suddenly lost his voice at the show I went to this past summer, yeah, I could have filled in, you know, at least for that song. That's a joke. So yeah, let me see if I can get this back together in some sense. And by the way, the disc looks pretty cool. Red on black, gotta like that. And you know, the back cover has the track list, which is okay. Let me get this thing back together. There we go. So, notice that this CD has two bonus tracks. We have uh, Amputate and Spawn Dirge. And uh, again, we had an incentive to buy CDs back in the day, rather than the vinyl or the cassette, because in this case, the CD had an extra 20 minutes of content. So that was attractive at the time. Um, So yeah, let's talk about the tracks. I'm not going to go into such extreme detail here because again some of these tracks mean more to me than others and you know i tended to not listen to this album straight through so much like i did with maybe some of their earlier work um it starts out with rodent which is as i said my favorite puppy track of all time and why is that i guess part of it is those memories it brings up like i said but it's also just a really badass song it's really groovy It's maybe more electronic than some of their stuff. It has a strong beat, has a strong bass line. And I especially like how the snare drum comes in and out. Generally, there's just a four on the floor kick going through most of the song, but the snare comes in from time to time to give it a solid backbeat. Um, I like Ogre's crazy vocals. He's very affected out on this album. He's sometimes a little buried in the mix. It makes it damn near impossible to tell what he's saying most of the time. But they did print the lyrics to Rodent, at least, so I know what he's saying here. And like I said, Al plays a little guitar lead early in the song, which is funny because it emphasizes the sample of the DJ saying, and what came back to Earth was a great rock and roll band, which is kind of like a little sonic pun there with his rock and roll licks. And like I said, later in the song, the backbeat comes crashing in, with Al's rhythm guitar, which just kind of pins you to the floor. It's just an amazing moment. I love it. I love it. Maybe my most favorite thing about this track, though, is at the very, very end, the last thing you hear, it's a voice saying something that's all slowed down and weird sounding. And it was only recently that I learned that it was saying this, let us build a better mouse trap, which is just perfect because it explains the song title and just thinking about that gives me chills and it makes me so happy and I can't I can't explain why it just does and it just goes to show you that you can still learn things about your favorite music even if that music is 30 plus years old 
And by the way, this is Ken Hiwat Marshall's favorite puppy track, too. Ken, of course, is the band's longtime friend, engineer, and live sound guy. And you should check out Ken's YouTube channel if you haven't already. Ken Hiwat Marshall. If you do, you'll find a new mix of Rodent that he calls Rodent version 2.0. And it's absolutely crystal clear. It is truly amazing. And you'll love Hiwat regardless because he shares a ton of music production tips that he learned the hard way in his 30 plus year career. And he's just a super fun and interesting guy with plenty of stories. So check him out. So from here, we dip into three tracks I'm less familiar with. Uh, We have Hexon Exon X, which is a play on the phrase Hexon Exon. And I understand it's a commentary on the wreck of the Exxon Valdez, which spilled, as you know, its entire cargo of crude oil into the Prince William Sound in March of 1989. I guess they modified the title for artistic reasons, or maybe they wanted to prevent a lawsuit. I don't know. This song is kind of strange. It has a nutty shuffle rhythm that I don't especially dig. Maybe it's me. Um, Then we go into two-time grime. It's a good example of a skinny puppy song that has a very unusual drum track. And they weren't really down with just the ordinary boom bap. They have a lot of songs like this with some pretty innovative rhythms. And I dig this song. It's groovy. It's also kind of atmospheric. Then we have Fascist Jock Itch. And it's like this double time thing that sounds like Ministry or Palehead. It's kind of punky. It's got Al's guitar on it. And I guess the lyrics and the title came from this incident that happened between Ogre and some skinheads. I remember him describing it in an interview way back in the day when I used to read all their interviews on FTP sites. And I I see that that story also made its way to Wikipedia. But essentially, he was getting picked on for his clothing, which is something that as a young alternative kid, uh, I could relate very well to. And then we get to Warlock, which is this album's Pièce de la Résistance, and to many, the greatest puppy track ever, or at least the most representative. Uh, Puppy fans hold this song up in much the same way that Rush fans will hold up Tom Sawyer. And that said, Al's influence is less evident on Warlock, maybe because this track is not so much hard-hitting as it is funky and atmospheric. It's got a definite verse chorus verse structure so it is a little bit poppy and the verse has this amazing synth bass line that warbles in and out it's just super slippery and groovy and i know i've been overusing that word groovy i also overuse the word classic when i'm on this show but someone's going to turn this show into a drinking game but the chorus of warlock the chorus has these amazing synth strings that Dwayne plays and Ogre's vocals are run through a vocoder and it all just sounds really epic. And I guess that's maybe the best word for this song. It's just epic. It's skinny puppy from soup to nuts. It's, it's everything they do perfectly encapsulated. Um, the way they incorporate strings and softer ambient elements with the hard hitting rhythm, it's all there. And of course this song is also notorious for featuring a sample of Charles Manson Over the break, he sings the Beatles' Helter Skelter, and to underscore that, they've even added guitar samples from the beginning of Helter Skelter, which I recognized immediately upon 
first buying the White Album, which I did some decades after getting into Skinny Puppy. Yeah, that's right. I didn't have my Beatles period until middle age, (laughs) so sue me. But when I first heard Helter Skelter, I was like, yep, that's Warlock. So why did they choose to include Manson's voice on this record? I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe it was an 80s attempt at edginess, breaking a taboo. Honestly, it didn't much matter to us kids at the time. Uh, I think I really only found out who this was after the fact. Because let's face it, we were children of the 70s and 80s, not the 60s. And we didn't know who Manson even was. This was long before Mr. Brian Warner and Mr. Quentin Tarantino would make him once again relevant to us. So yeah, Warlock was a single, of course, and it famously had a video that was immediately banned since it was pretty much just an amalgam of blood and gore caught from various horror movies. Again, the band probably just wanted to use it to stick a finger in MTV's eye, but of course, MTV didn't care. They just didn't play it, and Puppy wouldn't have a proper video on MTV until 1992 with Killing Game. And I only have an electronic copy of the Warlock single, but it has a couple versions of Warlock and an early version of Tin Omen that sounds maybe 90% like the album version. And it has this weird B-side called Brack Talk. Uh, Next up on the album, track six is Rain, which is sort of a cool ambient horror kind of track featuring vocals, not from Ogre, but from his then-girlfriend, Cyan Meeks, who, by the way, is an accomplished visual artist. Check her out, and just imagine having credit as a guest vocalist on a Skinny Puppy album on your resume. There's probably nothing cooler than that. Uh, So, anyway, interesting song. And then, of course, we get to Tin Omen, which we've already discussed at some length. This is more of a rock kind of track, rock-flavored track than anything else. The lyrics, of course, have to do with the Tiananmen Square Massacre, which happened in Beijing earlier in 1989. And and let's just recognize for a moment how these topical events, the Exxon Valdez and Tiananmen Square, showed up in this album mere months after they happened. That's kind of like the 1980s equivalent of South Park parodying something just days after it happened. Uh, so we have to commend the band for being so on point. Ogre was clearly reading the paper every morning and was pretty on the ball with his lyrics. But this song bears the marks of Al's heavy hand, and as such, it kicks ass, but not in a traditional rock kind of way, because the guitar on it sounds pretty chopped up. It's like they sampled just a bunch of riffs and just played them back all out of order. So while Tin Omen has a lot of guitar, it doesn't really come off sounding like Ministry or even like ACDC. To like a rock fan, it would probably all just sound a bit off. And I think that's what they were going for here, to do their version of like a rock song. And, you know, listening as a rock fan, you might not be able to really put your finger on what sounded strange about it. It just didn't sound like ordinary rock, but it still was really heavy. And this is a song that breaks a lot of the golden rules of pop, for sure. There's no chorus. The breakdown is this really crazy quadruple time bit of thrash metal, which is completely unexpected, but maybe the most fun part of the song. But the rest of it had this sort of motoric style beat that was pretty steady, and you could dance to it. You could mosh to it, and many did. 
And, you know, mainly it shows you how you could have a rockish song without being too rock. It's still clearly skinny puppy, but with more than a dash of ministry. And Tin Omen was a single too, naturally, with two versions of the title track. And then the bonus tracks from the Rabies CD, Amputate, and Sponderge. So nothing too much there for a CD collector, and I don't have that CD. And then we go to Rivers, which fulfilled the mandate for every 80s industrial band to sample a clockwork orange. And this was a pretty cool instrumental. It also sampled 2001 and some more obscure films. One of those was The Fearless Vampire Hunters, which my friends and I rented back in the day once we realized it was sampled for this song. And it turns out it was a film by Roman Polanski, and it featured him and his then-wife Sharon Tate, who, of course, was murdered by the Manson family in 1969. So it was yet another link between this album and Manson. And by the way, we went into that film thinking it was going to be a proper horror movie, but we were kind of disappointed that it was just a silly spoof. Uh, You know, we did cheer, though, when the main vampire dude recited the speech that was sampled in Rivers. So yeah, a fun tune with some cool memories attached to it. Then we have Coralone, which is another ambient horror style track, kind of like Rain. It's just another outstanding example of a cinematic puppy track. It sounds like it could have been recorded right off the screen at a slasher flick, but just listening to it suggests visuals. It's a very interesting track. It's not so much a song as it is a sonic painting, and it's one that leaves a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, I think it's a really cool track. And then we have the first bonus track, which is Amputate. And this is a very classic puppy track that would have fit in fine on the previous album, Vivisect 6. And there's nothing wrong with this track, but I can see why it was relegated to a B-side slash bonus track. And finally, Spondurge Live. And this is more or less a 16-minute brap, which, for those not in the puppy parlance, is their word for getting high and improvising. So who can say if it was really live or not? I don't hear any crowd noise on this recording. Mostly it's a bass line, some drums, and some screeching guitar with someone, I don't know if it's Ogre or Al, just saying a bunch of crazy stuff over the top. And in the background, there's just a bed of people having a conversation of some kind. Like they just turned on a recorder in the dressing room or something and then played it back for this performance. And you can hear it a little more clearly toward the end. And who knows what's going on here. But the name, of course, is yet another link to Manson, since the Manson family lived on the ranch owned by George Spawn, which everyone who's seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood now knows. And at one point, the vocalist says, Time to Melt, which is a reference to a song on Lard's debut EP, The Power of Lard, which also came out in 1989. And... As we all know, Lard was a side project that Al and Paul had with Jello Biafra. So that's what makes me think it could possibly be Al doing the hollering here. I don't know. I'm not sure. Someone clue me in. Anyway, that's the album. Nine tracks on vinyl and cassette, 11 on CD. So why do I love it? Again, this album mashes up two of my favorite bands, Ministry and Skinny Puppy, And it features some of Puppy's greatest songs, as well as my personal favorite, Rodent. 
I like that it's a bit more accessible than, say, Vivisex 6 or even Cleanse, Fold, and Manipulate, which sometimes drifted into pretty experimental territory, in my opinion, and I've always preferred accessible over experimental, which is why I'm talking about industrial rock and not, say, Throbbing Gristle or Einsterzen Neubauten. The experimental stuff just doesn't really do it for me. Soundscapes are cool, they're okay, but generally I need a beat and a bass line that speaks to my brain stem. I want to feel the music in my guts, viscerally. I don't want to have to think about it so much. Uh, I'm not some kind of like hippie sitting here puffing a doobie and getting off and all the rainbow sounds. At the end of the day, I want a hook I can hang my hat on and, you know, maybe a side order of whoop-ass. And Rabies provides all of that. Even though I tend to look at it as a collection of songs and not so much an album, some of the songs are so damn good that they just elevate the whole thing. I mean, obviously, if three songs are a 10 out of 10, the other songs can be mediocre, and the whole album will still have an excellent average. And I think that's what happened here, at least for me. And hell, I got to see the band play Rodent and Warlock live this year, so I'm a happy guy. Um, Also, this is an album that my best friends also like and come back to time and again, and I like that we talk about it. It's a conversation point among us. It's a touchstone, if you will. And, you know, another feature of the best music is that it's able to bring people together. Uh, Ultimately, though, I consider this album to be classic Skinny Puppy, for sure, Rodent, Warlock, and Tin Omen are fan favorites and live staples, and that's reason enough to love it. So what happened next? Well, maybe, to everyone's relief, Al buggered off back to Chicago, having thusly made his mark in Vancouver, and there was talk of Skinny Puppy breaking up after this, but I think that was true for most of their career. They were always riding the the ragged edge of breaking up, and especially so when making their best work. And it's just part of that dynamic between Ogre and Kevin. They just normally don't see eye to eye. They don't really like hang out as pals so much. It's just a different kind of thing. But yet they're capable, maybe with Rave's help, of course, of working together to produce amazing music. So it was strange then that they would once again coalesce in 1990 to record Rave's follow-up, this time without Al, It would be a pure puppy album, and the end product would be my favorite album of theirs, Too Dark Park, which I talked about before. And to me, Too Dark Park is the greater album, but Rabies has better songs. In other words, the songs on Too Dark Park don't stand out individually to me as much, but I think they work much better together. The entire album flows better and has a more unified sound, whereas Rabies doesn't flow as well, in my opinion, but it has some jaw-droppingly amazing tracks on it. So, just two different kinds of greatness. You know, pick your poison. They're both great in their own way. But rest assured, Too Dark Park proved that Puppy wouldn't just become another ministry because it sent the band's sound in another direction entirely, one that was dominated by sampling, whereas Al took ministry ever closer to metal, which is Pretty much where they wound up for the past three decades, which, as I said, wasn't as much to my taste, but meh. But for sure, producing rabies would be a feather in Al's cap, 
and would boost his profile even more, making him perhaps the single most influential figure in industrial rock history, with all due respect to Paul Barker and Sasha Konietzko. Well, there you have it, folks. Rabies, as classic a skinny puppy album as you'll ever find. That's right, it's a classic, and it's groovy. Everyone drink. You've been listening to Stronger Than Reason, either on YouTube or as an Apple or Spotify podcast. And it's Thanksgiving season here in the United States, and I'm thankful for you for listening to me and for sharing your thoughts in the comments. It's been really cool to hear what you all have to say and to have a little interaction. I think with so much division in our world today, I'm thankful that we can still agree on great music. So I hope you have a safe and happy holiday. Let's use this time to take a breather from the real world and think about all the good things that we have and take some time to recognize the people who've helped us out. We've all benefited from help. None of us have gotten where we are entirely on our own. Don't kid yourself about that. So I personally want to thank those in my own family who have to put up with me holding myself up to do this show every few days and for endlessly talking about it. And I want to thank them and all of you for the encouragement you've given me. I really appreciate it. But if I may get serious for just a moment, I'd like to share a pro tip for a successful Thanksgiving day. Eat your pie first to make sure you have room. And on that note, I thank you for listening. And until next time, stay strong.